Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Well, welcome to The Two Testaments, a podcast where we take you on a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're taking a look at Job's friends, especially Job chapters four to five. But, you know, it would be very daunting to look at all the things that the friends have to say, right? That's a big yeah. portion of yeah. the book of Job. Honestly, I wouldn't be that interested in doing that. And you're, Job's, like... and you're a Job specialist. Okay. Oh man, Job's friends. We're going to talk about Job's friends a bit, but they can be a little bit painful to deal with. Which I, and I think that's actually part of the goal. That's okay. what the author's trying to all do. Right. But anyway, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to focus on Job chapters four to five to spare Will and Trisha and the listeners, yep. an extended discourse. So we're glad to be joined by Dr. Tricia Vesley today to help us think about Job chapters four to five. Thanks for joining us, Tricia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and actually, in addition to four and five, I actually think looking at it, I thought I might focus in on chapter 11 too, because sure. I think actually it focuses a lot of the issues we're going to bring up in one place. So we'll look at different places in Job's friends along the way. So just a quick introduction for Trisha. Trisha is visiting assistant professor of Hebrew Bible and Christian ethics at Memphis Seminary. And that, that's a new position for you. Is that right? It is. This is my second year there. Great. Uh, that's excellent. Um, and your research interests, the focus on the intersection uh, between biblical studies and ethics with a particular concentration on character-based ethical approaches and the quote-unquote wisdom texts of the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's going to be, we're going to see how relevant that is for understanding Job's friends. I think it's, it's a... Um, innovative way that you've approached these texts in your book, Friendship and Virtue Ethics in the Book of Job, that's published by Cambridge University Press, which is also, I mean, fairly hot off the presses. When did this come out? Oh, I, I think that was 2019. Yeah, 2019. Um, yeah. A lot of new and exciting things uh, in your life, and uh, we're glad that you can add being a guest on the Two Testaments podcast is yet another new and exciting thing. That's right, that's right. <laughs> in your life as well. Uh, now, Tricia, before we get into the nitty gritty of the text, um, we have a few orienting questions. Um, the first one is, what first draw you to the book of Job? Great question. You know, I was first drawn to the book of Job because I sensed that it was a book that would allow for a lot of different poss possibilities and pathways for study. I mean, it's such a rich and complex book. I loved the creation elements in the book, the ethical questions that it raises. I loved its frankness about bringing to the table some very tough theological questions. So I saw in it a range of roads that could be followed that were all interesting to me. Now, I did end up focusing on the ethical components of the book for my own work, at least some of the ethical components. You know, there's been a lot written on what the book is probably most known for, uh, the question why bad things happen to good people and what role God plays in that. But I didn't wanna follow that same line of inquiry for a number of reasons. So for me, I shifted the focus to what this book might have to say about the ethics of human behavior and specifically friendship, how we might respond to one another appropriately in times of suffering. Yeah, and I just wanna say that 
I really appreciate that approach because I think a lot of people, they think of Job primarily as this like abstract philosophical text. And really it's very concrete and personal and relational uh, in the way that it presents its ideas. Now, I think part of the reason why people approach it that more abstract philosophical ways because they think of it as wisdom literature, right? And, so, <laughs> and that leads them I, to- I open. sense a theme that's gonna keep- <laughs> yeah, that, that, may, that may come up more than once. Um, but so your book, I think is really helpful in terms of focusing us in more on that relational and social aspect of the book. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Now, Tricia, how do you see the speeches of Job's friends? How do those speeches fit in with the rest of the book of Job? Well, the book of Job introduces and wrestles with some of these very fundamental questions of human life, in particular, human life lived in relationship to God within the context of a world filled with trauma and suffering. What I find somewhat remarkable about this book is that while the book does open and close with a narrative prose tale, so that's chapters 1, 2, and 42, 7 on, Primarily, those fundamental questions are set in the context of a conversation. So it's not a singular reflection by an individual or a descriptive account of how the world works, or even a philosophical or abstract treatise like you just said, Will. It's a conversation, a dialogue between several human beings and even later God. So it seems for the author or authors at least, conversation plays a central role in our struggles with questions that don't invite easy answers. So if I can, let me just say something about, you know, the speeches of the friends and Job just in view of the prose narrative. If you take just the prose narrative, chapters one, two, and 42, you know, we find this tale about a virtuous sufferer who withstood trials and was rewarded for God, rewarded for it by God. And in this tale, the world seems rather black and white. An innocent man is tested, he succeeds, and God rewards him for that. But this tale raises some troubling questions that it doesn't answer fully. Was Job's suffering necessary? Was the proof of his piety to the heavenly court worth the death of all of his children? And what kind of God would allow this? Yeah. Right? So, I mean, these are the questions that if we didn't have the speeches of Job and his friends, we would be left wondering about. And it's not that we get complete answers in those dialogues, but at least we're invited to wrestle with these characters, you know, through those struggles and through those difficult questions. So I think without those, um, you know, the poetic center between chapters three and 42, without that, um, the book would be lacking. Not just in depth, but in humanity. So they play an important role. Yeah. Could you say that they're, I mean, it's almost like um, an agitator, right? So I don't know a whole lot about how like washing machines work, but but if you just put the clothes in there, (laughs) you're not really going to get clean just by, you, you need something that agitates, you need some tension, some friction, and that actually leads to pulling the dirt off. So you might think of, could you think of the friends that way, kind of playing that role within the book? Is it agitating? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, they allow they allow us to um, express with Job the frustrations, you know, mm-hmm. with what has just happened. Um, we get voices. We get real human voices um, to bring up those questions that we wouldn't have otherwise. And I think you're right. Um, we need that. 
yeah. after this terrible story of a man who loses all of his children, you know, so. Yeah. Now, what do you see, what do you, for you is the most difficult thing about understanding the speeches of the friends? What's the most complicated or difficult <laughs> thing for you to make sense of? You know, I was um, thinking about the various friends speeches and um, I guess, depending on where you stand, you know, you can either just get agitated by them all, you know, right away, or, you know, I know some readers um, have sympathy for the friends and they get agitated with Job. They want to continue to <laughs> condemn Job. So I kind of fall in the former. Okay. But I was looking back at um, Bill Dad's speech in chapter eight, and he says something like this. Will God pervert justice if your children sinned, God handed them over to their transgressions? Mm. So basically, he's telling Job, you know, your kids perished because of what they did wrong. Mm. And that's a that's a pretty terrible thing to say to someone. I mean, especially as readers, we know that that's not the reason. We know that there was this heavenly wager between God and the Satan um, that had nothing to do with the sins of Job's children or Job himself, this you know pious and righteous individual. So those are some pretty tough words to swallow, even you know among those who have a sort of commitment to what we call retribution theology. And I don't know if you've talked about that before, but this idea that you know, human behavior is connected with um, predictable outcomes. So if a person is living piously or righteously, they can expect some level of peace and security. If they're living um, not piously, you know, with wickedness, then they can expect negative consequences. And these are, you know, this is the kind of worldview that the friends in general espouse. But even within that worldview, to say something like that, uh, it's pretty hard to stomach for me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So that's eight, three, and four. And that is one of the low points of the friends. Yeah, yeah for one sure. of those moments where you think, dude, you went too far there. I mean, you know, there is this kind of, even within their debate, bringing in Job's children, and there is some debate about, you know, the degree to which what actually happened to Job in the prologue is really behind what goes on in the dialogue because there are places where Job talks about his children. So it's a little bit unclear. Um, but here it sure seems we can't avoid thinking of those two things in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and that is just rough <laughs> what Bill Dad is trying to do there. So um, let's dig into some other parts of the text. Let, let's think first, you know, we just mentioned Bill let, let me Let me just, let yeah. me just say, um, I kind of feel like, though, that, <laughs> that what the friends are expressing is also like a very deep, like retribution theology. You know, it's in the Bible, right? I mean, the, the idea of the, the yeah. covenant that God gives to Israel, right? If you are faithful, to, if Israel is faithful to the covenant, the result is life, peace, prosperity. Yeah. If Israel transgresses the covenant, then the result is death, you know, perishing curses. True. So, I mean, it's not like what they're saying is like out of nowhere. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the other piece that I'll just add to this is that the the friends are not privy to the prologue, as far as we can tell. Well, right? We're definitely not privy to what happened in the heavenly. That's council. right. Yeah. Right. So they're kind of they don't have the vantage point that we do as here sure. when we come to the text. Right. We see what what happened before, so we know that their retribution theology is kind of you know, doesn't apply in this situation, but. Right. But they don't know that. Yeah, no, right. That's exactly right. And I think, you, I mean, you're right to push us to be somewhat sympathetic to the situation that they're, to the friends. that the friends are facing, trying to interpret what's going on. Uh, and even here, there's a kind of comfort 
that maybe Bildad would feel and say, well, this is such a terrible thing that these all these children have died, but maybe it's because they're sinners that they've died. Well, that, there's a strange kind of comfort that you can get from that. You're, you're nodding. You, you see that, Tricia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and um, maybe we'll get to talk about this more. What leads the friends to have these kind of harsh statements? But yeah. I think you're right. Comfort is one. Uh, there's a fear if we accept the world that lets things like that happen. Uh, so I think it's, a, you know, there's a security in, in having that kind of, um, you know, equation work out right. So yeah. I think, you know, holding on to that, the security of that worldview um, that doesn't force us to face those troubling situations where a person could have such terrible things happen to them for no reason. You know, in, in the prologue, we, we get this really troubling word for no yeah. reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's think. So we've got the friends. We've got three friends. We've mentioned a couple of them already. So you've got Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. And just for our listeners, one way that I remember the order in which they speak, because they speak in the same order every time, is, well, Eliphaz, he's like the leader of the group. Um, so you just have to remember that. Uh, and then Zophar, his name starts with Z. So he start, he goes last. So and then Bildad's in the middle. So you got Eliphaz, is the, he seems to be the leader. And then Bildad and then Zophar. And we have these three cycles. And in each cycle, they take turns in that order, though in the last cycle, we don't have a speech from Zophar. Uh, now, do you think that we can differentiate between those three friends? Like, does, do different friends have different major positions? Or do you think that they're basically representing the same view? Well, scholars have certainly tried to assign them different positions. Um, in general, I think there's more similarity than difference. I mean, they're all coming with the same uh, line of reasoning that, you know, Job, you're a sinner. Uh, we need to get this confession of sin from you. Things happen to you for that reason. You know, we, we do see Eliphaz as the leader. He speaks the most. Um, he speaks first. When God addresses the friends at the end, God says, Eliphaz and your, your friends. So God names Eliphaz only. Some will say that Zophar is the more mystical of the friend because mm -hmm. he, um, you know, if we talk about chapter 11, he talks about the mystery of God and he seems to bring up the transcendence of God more than the other friends. But again, um, you know, there, there's so much overlap between what they say um, as far as, you know, assigning blame to Job and basically trying to get Job to realize that, you know, trouble happens for a reason. You know, the trouble in Job's life is for, uh, as, you know, a result of his wickedness. So I don't have too much of a, you know, I don't hold to the view that they, they have very strong separate positions. Maybe a bit of different nuances come up in their speeches, but more similarity than difference, I would say. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit beforehand about, you know, if you could pick a favorite friend or a least favorite friend, who would it be? And we kind of concluded, both of us, that, well, if we had to pick one, it might be Zophar just because he talks less than the rest of them. That's right. Yeah. So maybe just because he talks less, he has less opportunity to put his foot in his mouth. Bildad, <laughs> we just talked about in chapter eight. Now, in your book, uh, and I'll just show it here again, so Friendship and Virtue Ethics in the Book of Job, uh, you argue that Job is actually about friendship. So why do you argue that? And then how do Job's friends in particular contribute to that message in the book? 
Um, so I mentioned earlier that conversation plays a central role in the book of Job. You know, as Job wrestles with questions of why God would allow such things to happen and how he can continue on with life. The friends come in central stage with him, and they are part of this long struggle. Now, some will argue that the friends simply function as intellectual foils, you know, for Job's own perspective, somewhat in a Socratic or even scholastic sense where an author will set forth common perspectives, you know, so as to provide an alternative in a search for truth. But I, I think there's a lot more to it than this. I don't think this is a book that is just about coming to the right doctrine or position with respect to understanding God and suffering. If we look at Job's own train of thought in the opening cycle of speeches, he brings up the question of friendship right away. You know, in chapter six, which is where he begins his response to Eliphaz. He starts off by lamenting his suffering. He says, oh, that my anguish were weighed on the scales. It would be heavier than the sands of the sea. And then he goes on and he names God as the cause. He says, the arrows of the almighty are in me. He concludes that he has nothing to stand on. My own strength and my resources are depleted. And now I'm somewhere around verse 12, 13. And then following this, as if recognizing I can't go on without help, you know, I'm at a loss, I have nothing left within me, my, I'm alienated with God, his attention turns to his friends, and he says, a friend owes hesed uh, to one who is failing. So you might translate that as solidarity or loyalty, that's in 614. And this begins a long journey that Job and his friends take together not just debating Job's innocence and God's role in it, but for Job, communicating his desire and his need for aid, for comfort, for solidarity in times of suffering. So the friends unfortunately fail in this. I mean, and if you've read any bit of Job, you know that he, he doesn't get this comfort and solidarity. But this, I think, might not be unintentional on the author's part. I think there might be a rhetorical strategy here in the sense that the book is creating a kind of emotional or narrative void. Job is not getting what he keeps calling out for. He keeps calling out for comfort, for solidarity, for an advocate who will stand with him in his suffering. So, you know, as readers are tracing this journey where we end up wondering, is Job ever gonna receive this comfort? And we find ourselves in the position thinking, you know, we might be the only human companions left who could offer these kinds of responses to Job. So I think the rhetorical effect is that readers are moved to be Job's champion. We're encouraged to side with the sufferer, even if that sufferer is someone like Job, who's targeted by God or is regarded as targeted by God, an outcast to society, you know, acting outside of the boundaries of what is deemed acceptable or proper among the wise or the pious. You know, it's creating in readers this kind of um, empathy with such a person. And that might be, you know, we're not going to know for sure, but that might be one of the aims of, of this book as a whole. You know, it pulls friendship in, not just in Job's struggles, but in our own interaction with this book. Yeah, I mean, that sounds similar. I, I like to think of Job as not really being about wisdom primarily wisdom's a role it plays a role there but i think it's a primarily about comfort 
which overlaps a lot with what you're saying about friendship, because friendship is the means through which, or one of the means through which um, that comfort could be found. Unfortunately for Job, it's not found in his friends. And so there's absolutely indictment of their friendship. Yeah, that's really helpful. So basically, you know, if your friend is suffering, it sounds like y'all are saying, if, if your friend is suffering, I just said y'all and I'm not from the South. <laughs> if your friend is suffering, the appropriate response is to kind of not try to offer all your discourses on wisdom and try to rationalize the suffering, yeah. but to just maybe be quiet, shut up and offer some comfort. Is that, is that? Yeah. I mean, so, well, Trisha can talk a little bit more. I'm um, talking a lot more about it. <laughs> um, That's a what great- is, what is required of friendship? I mean, I think yeah, one that's thing, a great. Cr- yeah. Sorry, but I was just going to say uh, one thing that I took from your book, and you can you can um, elaborate on this. But the importance of advocating on behalf of those who are suffering. You want to talk a little bit mm-hmm. more about that? Sure. I mean, and it brings up um, a really key verse. I think in this, uh, as far as this uh, topic, in chapter six, when Job um, first starts speaking to his friends. You know, after he's, you know, he hears Eliphaz's first speech, he doesn't say, agree with me. Um, He says in 628, he says, face me, look at me. Mm -hmm. And he says, and, you know, then the, you know, the truth of the situation will be made clear. I think Job is telling the friends, you know, step outside of your, your, you know, safe worlds. Uh, Stop treating me like a proposition, you know, the can fit into your understandings of this retribution theology and see my situation because it's unique. It's different. Uh, he needs someone to stand with him. Mm-hmm. And if you follow his speeches throughout the rest of the book, you'll see this need for an advocate, someone who can voice his cause, stand with him in what he sees as his struggle against and with God. Um, and the friends, you know, he, he first turns to them, like I said, in chapter six, Uh, And that starts to fall away. And then he starts to kind of have a search. He looks to the heavens and the earth and he keeps this search for an advocate. And I think that is one of the main themes. So if you tie that together with friendship, uh, Job asks for chesed. He's asking for courage. Uh, One of the other things he says uh, in that uh, same opening speech in chapter six to the friends is you see a horror and you flee in fright. Mm -hmm. The friends are so afraid of his situation. They don't want to change their worldviews. <clears throat> so he needs courage. He needs hesed or loyalty. He needs an advocate uh, to be there with him, to come into his space and not just kind of smooth out the intellectual bumps in yeah. this broken worldview. Yeah. And let's look at some of the dynamics of how that relationship with the friends sure. seeds over the course of the book. So if we start in chapter four, right, this is the first speech from a friend. And this is Eliphaz, the kind of leader of the crew. Uh, and he starts off really respectfully to Job, at least it seems. So verse two, four, two, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? And we don't get this kind of respect later in the speeches. Um, but who can keep from speaking? See, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who were stumble, stumbling. And you have made firm the feeble knees. So very, he speaks positively about Job. He speaks re- respectfully to Job. But then if we skip towards the end of the speeches, so if we look at 22.5, for example, so this is now Eliphaz again in his third contribution to the dialogue. He says, 
is not your wickedness great? There is no end to your iniquities. It's <laughs> a big change here in terms of the tone uh, from the beginning of the speeches to the end. So what do you think is happening there? Yeah. You know, well, I, I wish I, you know, I, I'm going to just hypothesize, um, obviously. Um, there's a lot of great conversation about this. And one scholar that I found helpful is a French scholar, Philippe Nemo. Um, and he talks about the friends and their commitment to technique. Uh, he says that this is a kind of worldview that needs to see things in predictable patterns. You know, it's, it's this, this whole idea that if someone is wicked, God will punish them. If someone is righteous, they will reap the rewards. Therefore, if someone is suffering at the hand of God, they must be guilty. So I think that what happens here that, you know, rather than allow their perspectives on reality to be changed by Job. Um, and again, you know, they, Job has just condemned them for fleeing in fright. What he represents is too terrifying. He's an anomaly to this predictable world. So they must make Job into a sinner. And in that way, he will fit into their understandings, their comforts, their need for that kind of secure worldview. Um, and th that's what Nemo means by technique. The friends need a world that's observable, predictable, and gives them a measure of control. Mm -hmm. So Job, as he stands, doesn't have a place in that kind of world. So they're, you know, they're kind of twisting him into what they need him to be. Right. Do you think that, um, you know, I kind of wonder, I, I bristled a little bit with the, um, I agree with you that by 20, is it chapter 22 you mentioned? Yeah. That there, yeah, he starts to get pretty explicit in the way he's blaming Job. Although I kind of wonder if he's, you know, he's prepping the way. I, maybe I'm overreading this. You know, Eliphaz comes in and he says, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? You know, and then he goes on to say, um, verse five, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. I mean, it seems like he's being a little passive aggressive. No. Yeah. Is that a possible way to take it? It's kind of like there's a subtext there. Like, you know, it's you don't want to come out and lambast okay. the guy right away. Yeah. But. You're, you're, he's, he strikes me as a kind of passive aggressive. There's a lot of undercurrents there going on. Well, yeah, he, maybe he goes from passive aggressive <laughs> towards the beginning. Aggressive, <laughs> aggressive, aggressive. <laughs> There's a show. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Now let's, let's look at uh, chapter 11 now. And uh, this is, uh, this is Zophar uh, in chapter 11. And this is, um, a relatively shorter speech from one of the friends, but in this speech, we get a lot of the key themes that come up. And one of the things, things that we see in chapter 11 is a place where the friends could potentially be right in what they're saying. So let me read uh, 11, seven to nine here. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And, and this is actually God in his argument in the divine speeches, something that he seems to be making, a point that God seems to be making as well, right? That you can't understand the breadth of my ways. We also see something somewhat similar in Psalm 139 or even Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So 
What do you think, Trisha? Are there ways in which the friends are right? Should we give them some credit? I do think we need to give the friends some credit. You know, when I teach Job in my courses, one of the things I do is to ask my students to try to find places in the friends' speeches that sound like good counsel, perhaps counsel that they have used or heard used in times of suffering. I mean, just to make us realize that the friends in a lot of places are using words that scripture affirms elsewhere, because it is a tendency for those of us that bristle right away off of, you know, Eliphaz's aggressive, passive aggressive behavior to just write them off and say, we don't need to read this just, you know, you know, they're just um, angry, <laughs> you know, folks. But, you know, this is why I think the book is more than just a dialogue about trying to get to certain truths or doctrines about God. You know, in the passage that I referred to in chapter six, it's crucial that Job says to his friends, not agree with me, but face me. Job is looking for an advocate, courageous, you know, compassion, solidarity. Um, he wants to be treated like a human being. So the friends may speak words that may be true to a certain effect, but they lack a kind of wisdom, a kind of practical wisdom, if you will. Their effect in using their right sounding words is to increase Job's suffering, as he says in chapter 16. So their wisdom, if you call it wisdom, is not having the effect that wisdom is supposed to have. It's not restoring Job's relationship to God. It's not bringing him to a place of peace. It's not allowing him to flourish. So something is wrong in their use of this language. And maybe we'll talk about um, God's response to the friends later, but I think it, it connects with this question, what did the friends do wrong? You know, is it wrong to say, God's ways are beyond human ways. No, but if the aim is to, you know, coerce someone into some kind of confession that is not merited or to inflict them further, um, you know, that is, um, that has very harmful consequences. And I think that, that that actually makes the book of Job even more profound because I mean, one way that this book could have been written is that the friends are just awful and terrible and never say anything right and we can't you know we can't agree with them on anything you could have written it that way i guess but uh the fact that they do say things that are theologically correct is more challenging to us right because we may share some of their beliefs about some of these things um but it pushes us to think about well when does this apply right when can we apply this it's not quite as easy as just having the right beliefs and avoiding the wrong beliefs right it's knowing when a certain view of the world, a certain theological perspective applies in a particular situation. And so right. by letting the friends say some things that are right, that pushes that additional question on us, which makes it even more challenging. Absolutely. Now, that's one place where perhaps the friends are right, even if they're maybe not applying that idea rightly. Another thing that we see here in chapter 11 is um, in verse 11, where Zophar says, for he, speaking of God, knows those who are worthless. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? And this fits in with a broader theme that we see across the friend's speeches of a rather low anthropology, right? They think of humanity uh, in a very low way. So we see 417, can mortals be righteous before God? Can human beings be pure before their maker? 
Uh, then 15, 14 to 16, this is both of these are Eliphaz. What are mortals that they can be clean or those born of woman that they can be righteous? God puts no trust, even in his holy ones, and the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, one who drinks iniquity like water. He's already kind of pushing on Job a good bit right here. Uh, and then Bildad in chapter 25. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less a mortal who is a maggot and a human being who is a worm? Uh, would you categorize this this low view of humanity as one of the places where the friends are just simply wrong? I think so. I mean, I guess, you know, to if we put it in right or wrong categories, yes, I, I would say so. Um, you know, this this conversation brings up an, an interesting, you know, question that that is picked up throughout Job um, and, and connects it to the Psalms. I mean, this is kind of your specialty, I know, Will. Um, so Eliphaz seems to affirm Psalm 143, too, before you, no creature is righteous. Mm. But the psalmist is using that um, to appeal to the mercy and grace of God for deliverance. And in Job, the friends seem to use it to coerce Job into a place of silence or submission. Yeah. You know, so humans are corrupt, nothing more than worms in God's eyes. You know, what right does he have to profess any kind of integrity before God? So this question may serve as a grounds for debating whether humans have a rightful place to bring such laments and strong words against God. I think one of the questions in the book of Job is, you know, what kind of language is acceptable? Um, what does piety really look like? Is it submission and silence or can, you know, these impassioned outcries of pain be a mark of true piety? So it, it gives us, you know, grounds for debating that. You know, it's not, though, that Job professes a high and dignified stance of, for humanity either. You know, he uses psalmic language in uh, chapter 7, 17, when he says, what are humans that you make so much of them, that you fix your gaze on them? So he's picking up on Psalm 8 and um, Psalm 144. Yeah. And in Psalm 8, the, the response is humans are a little lower than the angels. I mean, this is a very dignified and magnified view of humans. Job is saying you know, you're fixing your gaze on me for um, destructive purposes. You're targeting me. You're harassing me. You won't leave me alone. If we bring in the divine speeches, which I know we're not going to, you know, get too far into, but this is where I think we get an alternate perspective to both the friends and Job's, um, you know, response to this question. Because I think God, um, in showing Job these wild creatures and, um, you know, the wild places of creation. God says something uh, in, you know, his discussion about behemoth, that humans are made, Job is made with behemoth, this, this wild creature that God is praising. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something in there that um, affirms the dignity of human beings among the creatures of the cosmos, the freedom and dignity that maybe corrects the friends and Job's perspectives. Yeah, and you might also argue just the fact that God deigns to come to Job and speak to him in the divine speeches is yeah. in itself an affirmation of Job's value, which would kind of put the lie to some of these things that the friends are saying about how, why should God care about lowly right. uh, 
humans. It sounds like you can take the same proposition, basically, right? The same proposition can be used in for different purposes, or you know, in yeah. Well, and that's ways. I mean, that's what I would see going on with some of those that psalmic language that gets picked up in Job mm-hmm. is that the friends take that psalmic language, the language they, of the what is man, what yeah, is like a human what being, it, yeah, and those kind that those kinds of ideas, and they turn it against Job and say, see. Just shut up and take it. Right. You must have, there must be something going on, something sinful right. because you're lowly, you're yes. depraved, you're wicked right. and you're right. But even though Job in chapter seven uh, is parodying what's going on in Psalm 8, mm-hmm. he's actually trying to evoke the kind of vision of humanity that's there in Psalm 8 and saying, hey, God, this is not what I'm experiencing. Right? You're not treating me the way that Psalm 8 would describe. So he's trying to use that language. Mm-hmm. To argue with God, which I mean, that's the way that I would see it. So there, they are even like theological ideas or or other passages from other texts. Uh, the friends in Job are using these in different ways, in different to, ways to make yeah. their kind of argumentative points. Well, let's keep on moving on in chapter eleven here. So Zophar's primary advice that he gives to Job in this chapter is the same kind of advice that we get from some of the other friends, and you've already kind of address this when you were talking about technique. So 13 and 14, he says, if you, Job, uh, direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands toward him. Uh, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. Uh, And so, so far as giving I think of Job this hope that, well, all you need to do is repent of your iniquity and that, that kind of stretching out your hands imagery is a kind of a, an appeal to God. Do you think that this is good, friendly advice? Well, I think Zophar's words here are in keeping with the counsel of the friends in other places where we do hear language that um, sounds right on the surface or could be used, you know, in you know, rightly in certain circumstances. You know, I think this goes back to the question of whether or not the friends are willing to confront a world where things don't always work out the way they would, uh, we would like them to. Um, you know, where piety and righteousness yield peace and security and wickedness leads to trouble and turmoil. Is this good, friendly advice? Going back to this idea of technique, I think what we see in Zophar is a bit of presumptuousness in the sense that he is predicting how the world will work. And we know from experience that what Zophar says is not always the case. You can't judge a person's closeness to God based on their situation in life. That's a dangerous road to go on. You know, if we start believing this, then we may end up seeking wealth as our primary focus in life just to secure our sense of God's favor. And it can lead to judgmental attitudes that we see uh, in the friends, for example. I do think it's a bit ironic that Zophar's words here follow what he says, that no one knows the mysteries of God. And yet at least Zophar seems to know, and the friends seems to know, seem to know what the cause of Job's trouble are, troubles are. So again, I don't think it's wrong to proclaim faith in a good and just God or to express the limits of human understanding with respect to God's ways. But Zophar's attempt at providing friendly advice seems to be for the aim of getting a confession out of Job, of making him into a sinner. Uh, and why doesn't, why doesn't Job take that advice? Why, why doesn't he just confess and move on with his life? I mean, they're uh, saying, if you do that, this will all be over. 
Because you, you, yeah, you could reason like, surely I've done, right. there may very well be something that I've done wrong, some kind of hidden iniquity. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Well, Job is a, I mean, Job is a unique character, isn't he? You know, um, this is a man who holds fast to his integrity. And for whatever reason, you know, Job is um, convinced that uh, doing so would somehow, I think, you know, and again, I'm trying to put myself into Job's mind. I'm so mm-hmm. hypothesizing, would somehow dehumanize him. It would be a violation of his sense of self, um, I think, you know, when he knows uh, he uses the words, you know, for no reason elsewhere in the speeches. There's there's a hint that he knows that something is going on here that isn't a result of his sinfulness. And perhaps because he is committed to his own integrity, um, he's just not willing to go along with the friends. It does take a strong personality. I mean, it's. You know, if, you know, maybe this is what Job's wife is trying to say, just um, end the suffering and um, move on with life. But but Job is not that person. And there's also maybe a sense in which if he were to do that, if he were to say, "Okay, I'll just confess, even though I don't think that I have anything to confess worthy of the suffering that I face, uh, he would actually be proving the Satan's point from the beginning that what he's really motivated by is prosperity. And he's willing to play any pious game, right? To do any kind of rituals mm-hmm. necessary just to get the prosperity, the blessing from God. And so right. the fact that he resists this temptation mm-hmm. that their friends are offering to him over and over again, um, you know, some suggest that the friends are the Satan's final temptation to Job, that he has to face this test of the friends pushing him here. And you can see how tempting this would be, actually given the, the suffering he's facing, if all right. I have to do is say something to get out of this, uh, how easy it might be to do that. But if it isn't also holding fast to his integrity, also buying into a retribution theology in another way? Um, do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Like, no, I'm, in, I, I'm holding fast to my integrity. And so this is unjust. This should yep. not be happening to me. Yep. I mean, this is, we may be getting off. We are getting off. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Uh, but I mean, that happens with Job. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you think, Tricia, but I'll, I'll go first since we hadn't talked about this beforehand. But I think that actually Job relies on the retribution principle, that the book of Job, though a lot of interpreters think that Job, the book of Job is rejecting the retribution principle. Uh-huh. Actually, Job's argument with God doesn't work without it. Right. Uh, without this view that you should get what you deserve. Right. And this is not what I deserve. <laughs> not what I deserve. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're right that Job is angry because he expects a world where, um, you know, things like this don't happen. If you look at chapters 29 through 31, which is his last appeal of innocence, he says, basically, look, God, um, things are not working out the way they're supposed to. I have done, you know, I've been, you know, I've treated my servants justly. I've treated those around me justly. I've lived a, you know, with righteousness and um piety. And yet these things are happening to me. Something is wrong. So I don't think, you know, this is a book where we have an individual that doesn't change at all. I mean, sometimes my students and I get in conversations about, you know, was Job sinful? And I don't think the book is trying to take us down that road, but I do think Job needs to learn something, you know, and that's where the divine speeches come in and perhaps shake up Job's um, need or commitment to a you know retributive theology where if, if you act a certain way, suffering should not happen. 
Right. Well, I think Job needs some, you know, needs some wisdom and teaching uh, with that respect as well. Right. So his understanding of retribution is deepened or broadened or something like that. Uh, okay. Now let's let's think about the evaluation of the friends by other characters within the book. So Job in sixteen two calls his friends miserable comforters. Do you think that's a fair evaluation? Yeah, I love this phrase because it brings in two really important themes. And you've already mentioned one, comfort. Um, and, you know, the, the word for miserable, amal, trouble. So if you, you know, if you follow both of these themes, Job in chapter three laments his birth. And, you know, he goes through this long kind of anguished uh, lament and curse where he says, you know, the day of my birth has only brought me trouble. And he uses that word. Well, in Eliphaz's first speech, he uses that word, too. It seems like he wants to correct Job's understanding of, you know, where his trouble comes from. Because Eliphaz says in chapter four, verse eight, those who sow trouble reap it. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's kind of an indirect way of saying, no, it's not really, you know, God giving you birth that, that is causing your trouble. You know, those who have trouble in their life um, are their own, you know, respon are responsible for it. So, Job, you know, we have these long dialogues where they're, you know, bickering back and forth. Job is seeking comfort from his friends, you know, at the, in the prologue, the friends come to comfort and console him. He doesn't get it. So when he says, you all are comforters of trouble, mm -hmm. you know, literally in 16.2, what he's saying, you know, is Eliphaz, no, it's not that I'm responsible for the trouble in my life. You who are supposed to bring me comfort are increasing my trouble. So, you know, you mentioned the friends as one last temptation of Job. You know, they are one more stumbling block in his journey to finding wholeness um, or restoration. And we see those, you know, that word comfort come back up in Job's response to God. And I'm not going to take us down that rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> he, he basically says, you know, sometimes it gets translated, I repent after, you know, God's, you know, you know, speeches in, in 42, 5 and 6. Job says, I've, you know, seen, seen what my eyes have not seen now, therefore, and he uses that same word in Hebrew, um, which, you know, some, um, and if you're interviewing Bill Brown and others will, will push for comfort. And I think there's a good point in that Job finally receives comfort, yep. not through the friends, you know, but through this interaction with God. Yeah, I, I'm exactly on the same page with you and in terms of how we understand 42.6 is really culminating this theme throughout the book of nacham or comfort, um, which the friends fail to provide. They're miserable comforters. And it's the same root there in that this um, phrase we're talking about in 16.2. They're miserable comforters, but somehow through the divine speeches, God, Job finally receives that comfort that he needed all along. So let's talk about the next verse. So that was 42.6 we just were talking about. So 42.7, we get God's evaluation of the friends. Uh, and it's somewhat surprising what he says, given the fact that the friends are trying to defend God, it appears, throughout the whole dialogue. But God says, my wrath is kindled against you. He's talking to Eliphaz here. So against you, Eliphaz, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, Job has been accusing God and complaining about the way God has treated him throughout. But God here says, you who tried to defend me, uh, you who haven't spoken what is right. And this guy over here, Job, who attacked me the whole time, 
has said the right thing. So why is God so angry at the friends here? Why does he choose Job's response to his suffering over the friend's response to Job's suffering? Another great question. Um, <laughs> um, what I think is that, um, A, we do have to take into account God's harsh judgment of the friends. I mean, especially, you know, the question of what did they do wrong? What did they say or do wrong? You know, is, you know if, if God says to Job that Job alone has spoken rightly to or about me, depending on the preposition used there, um, and God requires the friends to offer sacrifices and asks Job to pray for them to prevent God from dealing more harshly. You know, what is it about the friends that makes God so angry, as you ask? Is it wrong to say that God's ways are beyond human ways? Is it wrong to say, turn to God in prayer and you will find peace? I don't think so. Not in an abstract or general sense. And even for some particular situations. But again, I think the problem is that the friends used those words to inflict Job further, and they didn't allow their own perspectives to be opened up, to be changed, to hold a place for someone who is suffering like Job. You know, they're committed to technique, to putting God in a box, you know, and they didn't come to Job's aid as advocates when he needed it. Their understandings of how God works were set. They seemed not to be willing to let Job, this disgraceful sufferer, expand those understandings and open their eyes further to allow them to learn something new about the world and God and themselves. And I think this is a powerful lesson. We can learn the most sometimes from those whom society sees as outcasts or improper or those who challenge our comfortable and ordered perspectives on how the world works. So this is a key moment, I think, in the whole journey, um, the question of friendship uh, that, that is taking place in the book. Yeah, I really like the way that, that you put that. And the way that I often think about this verse is that, so the friends, you know, they're trying to put God in a box, right? They have this way in, in which the world is supposed to work and God is supposed to work within the world. They have this small view of God. In order to maintain that small view of God, they feel like they need to attack Job. Mm -hmm. But Job has this much bigger view of God, the way I see it. And he, his view of God is so big, in fact, that he's willing to attack God himself <laughs> uh, to say, no, this is the way you're supposed to be, God. This is the way I understand who you are. But what I love about the way that you put that is the friends could have had the opportunity to enlarge their view of God if they had truly engaged in Job's suffering with him. And just, I'm going to quote from your book here. So this is in, in your conclusion. Um, this is page 264. But he's, you say, perhaps by demonstrating their solidarity, the friends' solidarity with and compassion toward Job, the friends would have succeeded in vindicating God's character in the process. And then a little bit later, the book of Job reminds readers that turning one's head away from those who are suffering or treating those who are alienated or oppressed with arrogance and disdain is never a means to piety, no matter how right or conventional one's words may sound. So maybe, you know, if they had taken Job's side, they would have expressed a true piety. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, they would have understood God in a deeper and fuller way than otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciated that. And, um, Thanks for the book. It's really, really helpful in a lot of ways. Thanks for the quip. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tricia, as we wrap up, we like to ask our guests to blurb about something, you know, as biblical scholars, you know, you often pick up a book and look at the back to see 
who has blurbed, you know, this book. Now you can blurb about anything. It can be a book. It could be a life hack. It could be a TV show or movie or anything else. Is there something you'd like to blurb that someone could say, oh, wow, Dr. Vesley blurbed that. I've got to check that out. Well, yes. And if it's okay, I have two. Um, That's great. <laughs> one of them is holding up my Bible over here. Let me actually start with um, a book by Samuel Ballantyne. Uh, so this is Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. It was published by Smith and Helwes, I think just last year. What I love about this book is that, um, you know, Sam Ballantyne is a Jobin scholar, for those of you who might not know that. But in this book, he brings together the story of Job with the passion narrative of Christ mm. um, in a very profound way. Um, and he's bringing in dialogues, not just with the texts, but with artwork uh, throughout the ages and with real uh, lived experiences of suffering. Mm. So I, I certainly you know, would recommend this for any readers. The other one is another book that I have just found fascinating. It's called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making by, and it's by a Japanese painter, Makoto Fujimura. And basically his thesis is that um, human beings are not fully living out their image of God or the dignity of their humanity unless they are involved in a creative artistic endeavor. I mean, in the sense that we all have this. So it does kind of tie into our discussion on Job and theology, trying to make theology into neat doctrines. You know, as a painter, what he says is that, um, you know, we know God most fully when we allow our imaginative side to open up, when we open up our minds to something more than the black and white world, and when we engage ourselves in that process of creativity. Well, thank you for those blurbs, uh, and I'm sure our audience will appreciate that as much as we have. Um, well, thanks for taking your time, uh, Trisha, just for uh, giving us your time and your expertise to guide us through the, let's say, riddles of uh, Job's friends. Um, it's been great to talk with you. And uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, if, you had, if you enjoyed this episode, we have a bunch of others on Job and on Romans. And you can go to our website at the two testaments.com when there you can subscribe to the website so you can get notifications when the next episode releases. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's iTunes or somewhere else, if you would like this episode and share it with a friend or a neighbor or anyone who you think would benefit from it, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, that would show us friendship. Yes, like a genuine right. friendship, but also <laughs> I mean, to be a friend to someone else by sending them that's the right. episode, sharing yes. it with yeah. Maybe they could learn how to be, you know, if there's someone in your life you think could be a better friend to you, mm -hmm. perhaps you send them this episode and they'll learn how to, you know, be a better friend. To you. <laughs> I mean, you never know when you might face suffering. So it's probably best to train all of your friends and how to properly respond. Oh, to good you idea. Yeah, I think this that's, is a, that's very wise. Well, uh, well, yeah, but, but this book's not about wisdom. It's really about comfort, <laughs> which is what I'm getting at here. So you'll be comforted. But anyway, well, thanks again, Tricia. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you. I've really appreciated it. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.